Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Today's guest is Nadia Okamoto, co-founder of August, the lifestyle and period products brand that is reimagining and redefining the period experience. August is more than a company with sustainable and traceable period products. It uses this platform to provide health education, reduce period poverty, amplify the voices of its community, and create an inclusive space for period expression. Nadia is also author of the book, Period Power, a manifesto for the menstrual movement, and founder and former executive director of the nonprofit called Period. She's a recent Harvard grad and has been recognized in the Forbes list of 30 under 30. Nadia, welcome to Brand On Purpose. Thank you so much, and I'm hyped to be here. Awesome. Thank you for saying that. And hopefully I gave you the right hypey type of introduction. I appreciate it. Cool. All right. So like me, but far more impressive than me, you wear many hats. Let's just start with the three kind of macro roles that you're playing in the incredible 24 years that you've been walking this earth. And I mentioned that because I want my listeners to understand what a prodigy you are. And also how powerful, no, but what a powerful example you are for everybody, especially young people. And you are also part of my favorite generation, Gen Z. I've got a 21-year-old and an 18-year-old. I love them more than anything in the world. And I believe that your generation is going to change the world. So go. Well, I appreciate that. I'm definitely on the older side of Gen Z. And my younger sister has no issue reminding me of that. But I think for me, I have always been really passionate about periods. It's been the core of my focus professionally since I was 16. So I started my career at age 16. That's when I founded my first nonprofit. And since then, you know, I've done a multitude of things kind of on the same vein of organizing at the grassroots level. I was really passionate about legislative advocacy. So I ran the nonprofit for six years as executive director. It's still continuing on. I ran for office when I was 19 in Cambridge for Cambridge City Council. I published my book about period power, and then I was chief brand officer at a Gen Z marketing agency that I since exited, but is still growing. And I kind of closed those chapters of my life doing multiple companies to really focus on August at the beginning of 2020. And naturally, I think like as a public facing founder and as a Gen Zer and as someone who grew up on social media, I inherently have a part of my career focus that's also as an influencer. So I just hit 4 million followers on TikTok this week. That is an audience I grew over the last less than two years. And with that comes with a lot of exciting projects and opportunities as doing brand deals. It basically is turning your whole personhood, your body, your mind, how you speak, what you say into a business operation. And so I think that there's an exciting and also kind of terrifying part of that. And then lastly, I love, you know, consulting on different projects. And I think that for me, I've always really loved, you know, addressing my ADHD symptoms with just different passion projects. I feel you on the ADHD. I could probably add to my own list, but that's probably top of my list. So I, I totally get that. Because I'm a man of a certain age, though, they didn't really recognize it in the 70s, and the 80s. And they treated it differently, actually, in a pretty mean way. So, but we can devote a whole, I'll go on your podcast and talk about it. <laughs> and we right? can talk about that then, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the support now is just so much better. So did you grow up in Mass? Are you a Massachusetts person? No, so I'm actually, I was born and raised in New York City. And then when I was nine, I moved to Portland, Oregon. But 
Yeah, Cambridge and Harvard campus specifically were always pretty close to home for me because I was actually born a year after my mom graduated from undergrad at Harvard and my godmother was like the Catholic chaplain there. So I was there a lot throughout my childhood. Yeah, my son is about to graduate from the other Harvard called Tufts. Still a great school, <laughs> but I know the area. My sister went to Tufts for a year or two years. Yeah. Uh-oh. And then? And then art school. Okay. Oh, cool. Okay. I mean, actually, they have a great art program as well. I love the area, even Medford, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> so you have, nobody can see this because this is obviously audio, not video, but I'm actually looking at you in your own podcast studio and you have this sign behind you that says Tigress. Explain that. So I think a lot of people look at me and they're like, oh, girl boss, you know, like been my own CEO for a while. But I think that girl boss doesn't have a very positive connotation anymore. And it's kind of linked to a lot of like burning out and being kind of center of the limelight and really kind of needing a lot of self-reflection. And I think a core part of my founding journey has involved a lot of burnout. And I hit a really low point in early 2020. And I ended up going to rehab, residential rehab, and I had to take my first break from work ever. And this was actually while we were raising our pre-seed round of August. So it was a time in 2020, height of the pandemic, where I was like pretty burnt out. And I think part of that was from doing high school, college, on top of having three companies, six clubs, four jobs. And when I was in rehab, I wasn't allowed to work and I fell in love with podcasts. I fell in love with audiobooks. And I fell in love with just going back to my roots of journaling, but I started doing audio, like audio voice messages. And I decided that I wanted to kind of share those audio diaries publicly, kind of as a way to keep me accountable for continuing to do that self-reflection, but also as a way to just connect with other people, maybe around the mental health journey, just kind of around the nitty gritty and of being a young entrepreneur as a Gen Zer at this moment in time. And so I started putting it out there and it became Tigress. Like Tigress to me, it was just this persona that I started adopting. Like my Chinese zodiac sign is the tiger. And I just fell in love with this idea of like, when I kept thinking in my, honestly, my therapy journey of like, what do I want to be in the world? You know, I think that therapists will ask you that or like executive coaches and I could never think of like, there was not a dream role or a dream job that I have, but there's this like dream way of being. And to me, I just kind of kept using the word tigress over like this fierce, but super vulnerable or like open to being vulnerable, like just person that, you know, has that ambition, but is also kind of like a scared cat in some ways. So that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, I have a neon sign that says Tigress behind me because it's who I am and it's also the name of my podcast. Well, look, I, I for one, appreciate you sharing your journey and being so vulnerable. I think it's important because we're all human first. Everything else is like second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever. So I appreciate that. When you say residential rehab, were you in rehab for working? because you were a workaholic? I was, but also for PTSD and depression and, you know, like self-harm tendencies. So, you know, I think that Gen Z is amazing. Gen Z also, I think, grew up with a lot of hustle culture and has been grappling with a lot of, you know, we're a generation that will probably change the world through social media and technological advancements. 
But I think we're also the first victims of having to grow up with that, those tools that can also breed a lot of toxicity. And so for me, yeah, I was kind of put away for a bit. And it's a experience that I really hated going through when I was in that time. But it's a time that I am super thankful for because I don't think that I could be the CEO or the business leader that I am today if I didn't go through that. Like, I'm very proud to be a venture-backed CEO, but I think that my biggest superpower right now is that I sleep 10 hours a night. Wow, I have to say- I would never do that two years ago. Yeah, so that's definitely been, I mean, that's also, we talk about ADHD and, and other things and trauma and I get you. And I do think that sleep depravity, as I've been told by many therapists, is oftentimes a symptom of those types of things. And it's interesting you say you can sleep 10 hours. I, I'm lucky if I get over seven, seven and a half, my ring says I'm doing really well, this aura ring. Not a client, but shameless plug for myself because I love this ring. But I, I get what you're saying. I do. And I respect it. I respect the journey. And I'm sure you're a lot stronger for it. And I want to talk about August, why you founded it, why you think it's so important. I mean, you wrote a book. How old were you when you wrote your book? 16? 20. 20. Okay, still. Grown. I was grown. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. 20 is very grown. I'm 52 and I haven't written a book yet, although I've got a lot in me. I just haven't done it yet. But why August? And why are you so committed to period education, ending period poverty? And by the way, I should say, I don't know if you know this, I had Claire Coder. Claire Coder from Ant Flow was one of my first guests, or very early guests on the podcast. And like you, founded Ant Flow very young dropped out of college, had a huge fight with her parents, and was incredibly successful in venture back just like you. And I she love it. It was an incredible story. Like 17. I think I was 17. She was 18. Like we've known each other for years and years. Yeah. In the Gen Z years. Yes. But, but that's amazing, right? It's incredible what you guys have done. Well, yeah. To answer your question on why August, you know, I set out on my journey at age 16 with no idea that I would still be doing period. I didn't even know you could do this as a profession. For me, I started a nonprofit because people in my local community needed period products. And I saw examples around me where if a community of people needed food, there were food drives and then people mobilized to get food, right? I remember, you know, this denim campaign where schools would collect denim jeans as a symbol of, you know, sexual assault awareness. And then they would donate jeans, you know, like I, I feel like I kind of very much just followed models of, okay, here's a need. It is a social issue that makes me mad. It's a social issue that I don't see mobilization happening around. I will voluntarily start a nonprofit. And that was it. I never thought that it would be a career, but, you know, I think because it is such an obvious issue and it's such an overdue field of work that is still excitedly growing at a very quick pace. And also with the advent of being able to use social media, like we within the first year became a national organization that was trying to get people to join this chapter network and follow toolkits and just kind of recreate this idea of mobilizing people to talk about periods, to collect products. So I led that for about six years. And in those six years, we distributed 25 million units of period products. And we had chapters registered in all 50 states and like 50 other countries. So I spent several years as leading an organization that was like the largest distributor for charitable purposes of menstrual products. And so I worked very closely with menstrual brands, with feminine care brands. Feminine care is not the term that I like using, but that's just what I, I know. I know. But Claire and I talked about that too. Yep. 
so I did that. And then a couple years into the organization, I started working directly with the largest period care brands in the world, you know, of Procter and Gamble, Unilever, Kimberly Clark, like these are corporations that I started having relationships with. And I was suddenly talking about periods online. And I think a natural segue was, even though I didn't call it consulting, I was consulting, right? Like they were compensating me or donating to the organization in exchange for time, in exchange for using my image. So I got to work really closely with them. And then because I just kind of really loved that work of trying to push brands to be better, I ended up joining my friend's Gen Z marketing agency that was basically a bunch of other 19-year-olds who are working with eventually 40 Fortune 500 companies on anything from marketing activations, brand strategy, you know, influencer marketing. So I was chief brand officer there where a lot of the major period care brands were clients of mine. And at the same time, I had just published this book, Period Power. And my favorite chapter of the book to write about was about the history of commodification of period care. And I really came to this thesis that we have the modern day period stigma because of capitalism. Because I believe that over the last century of these products being on the mainstream market, this message has been sold that you buy your product to hide your period or forget you have a period. Profit margins are higher when brands don't have to spend on marketing because nobody talks about periods and these are commodified products that people buy anyways and don't feel comfortable asking questions about where they're from, why they cost what they do. And when I started this work in 2014, 40 states in the US had a sales tax on period products, considering them luxury items. Meanwhile, products like Rogaine and Viagra are considered medical necessities. Like for me, I just remember writing this book and I think it was the first time that I was like, damn, like I've been doing policy advocacy. I've been doing large scale awareness campaigns. And when I wrote the book and did this research, I was like, I'm targeting the wrong people. It's not me targeting governors and trying to convince governors to take over this tampon tax. I need to get the brands to do something because I think that they're so responsible for formulating a lot of this stigma and this message. So a lot way of saying, I think August really is the result of spending about three years working with every major period brand internally and as a nonprofit partner and as an influencer, trying to get them to make better products, more sustainable, learning that there was an option to be more sustainable that they just were not choosing, being bolder, being more inclusive. And I think that I just got to a point of honestly, frustration of like, I mean, you know, from consulting, I think it takes a lot of a type of person of patience as a consultant, where your job is to suggest changes, but it's not on you whether or not they get implemented or held up. And I just don't think at the end of the day that I was cut out for that. I was too obsessive and passionate about this industry that even if my scope of work ended, I was obsessing over it. And so to me, honestly, I think August is the result of a lot of pain points I felt in terms of my own theories on social change around period stigma around the products themselves. Like most pads take 500 to 800 years to decompose. August pads take 12 months and they work better. They're softer, they're plastic free. Just these obvious changes. And obviously the way I'm attacking this issue from a social enterprise is very different from running a grassroots nonprofit. But I think the skills that I'm using and the mission that I have have not changed, right? Like I'm still trying to engage people and get them to talk about periods. I'm still trying to make high quality period care more accessible. I'm trying to donate period care to people in need, 
But now instead of fundraising and begging different brands to donate products, I'm just telling people, hey, you need to buy tampons and pads anyways, buy from us and we'll just use part of that to donate products, right? Like, I think that my mission really hasn't changed, but I really think that I just got to a point of frustration where I felt like my, from everything that I learned, if I could start with a blank canvas, given all my new information, like what is the vehicle of change that I would want to create? And that is what August is. Do you think that period products should be free in the same way that toilet paper is free in public places? And to clarify, I say this all the time, period products should be free in all restrooms, just like toilet paper. And a lot of people hear that and they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like you still sell products. And I'm like, look, toilet paper is not free. Someone pays for it, right? The government will pay for it. Like, but at the end, all be all, you walk into a restroom at any public establishment, any workplace restroom, office restroom, school restroom, there is toilet paper there. Someone paid for it, right? The school paid for it, the government paid for it, or your office manager paid for it. But it's free for whoever is in there using it because it's something that needs to be addressed. So I 100% think that it should be free. There are examples where it's free for everything, like Scotland as a whole country, you know, is making period care more accessible. But I do think that toilet paper and how toilet paper is accessible is what I think the gold star is for how we think of period product accessibility. Yeah, I ask because, I mean, obviously I feel the same way. And you're right, someone did pay for it. It should be there. When you think about you know, your business and you think about you know, all the large brands you first started working with by necessity, but you also learned a lot, maybe through negative example, but you learned a lot. How do you get them to get on board? Outside of you know acquiring August, but fundamental total business change, business transformation, you know why can't they do what you're doing? Okay, well I'll give you my very brutally honest answer, which that's is that's what I want. Good. I think that you show them that people are interested enough to the point where making that change is good for their business. Like, I think that, for example, I'm very critical of capitalism. A lot of people think that it's hypocritical for me to say that because I'm now a CEO of a for-profit company. But I think that a lot of my time in nonprofits and in policy and working with these corporations is what made me feel like the best way to make this change was to prove to them that to be relevant as a business, to scale with this new generation of with new values, I had to show them that it was in their capitalistic interest, which by the way, I don't think is going anywhere to make these changes. And I think that, you know, it's working, right? Like now everybody can hate cancel culture, but at the end of the day, it's forcing businesses, which are terrified of being canceled to be more equitable, or at least say they're being more equitable, you know, which we hope they're making real in and out changes. I think, you know, Tom's is a really good example of that, right? Like Tom's was the whole buy one, give one shoe. I think that now it is not novel to be do buy one, give one shoe. And I think that's a very exciting thing. Tom's proved out that people are excited to buy if they know that their purchase has a charitable contribution. Other companies saw Tom's using it as a marketing play that worked and adopted it. And I think that now these different companies, part of their marketing play is to talk about sustainability. So we're at risk of greenwashing in many ways, but something that excites me is that when I started August two years ago, I thought that a main selling point would be that we are carbon neutral. 
But it makes me happy to know that that is not a huge selling point because that is now an expectation. It is an expectation of brands to be carbon neutral. And I think brands adopt that because they are realizing that. And so I think that there's a part of me that thinks that we get companies to not August because these values are inherent in us, but I think we get these other larger companies that have been long established. Like they need to show that their bottom line is going to be negatively affected if they do not change. And what I'm excited about with August is like, before I started August, I remember always thinking that and hearing from the brands like, but there's, this is what they're going to buy anyways, right? Like their whole family uses these products. They're not going to go change. Where are they going to go to, right? The other options are more expensive. They don't speak to this consumer. It's not a risk. If we don't do anything, we spend no money to change. You know, we're not going to lose any business. And I think at the end of the day, I am cynical about the ambitions of many of those corporations. And I believe that, you know, they can see August, they can see companies that are tax-free growing, getting a lot of positive press for it, and they'll make a change. And I think we're seeing that, you know, like CVS now is covering the tampon tax. That's a new thing, right? I hope that other brands, like I don't want to be the only brand that covers the tampon tax online. I think it's sad that we're the only brand to do that. I, think I, it- I had no idea. You see, that the thing is, like, I don't think media really reported on that, or I just didn't see it. When did that happen? CVS? Yeah. Like, in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. That's amazing. And, they're, you know, by the way, they're also the first ones to ban tobacco from their stores, which I know sounds like, duh, right? But these pharmacies are supposed to be places for healthcare and well-being. We're also selling tobacco products, which makes no sense at all. And they're the first ones to do that. And you, you raised venture capital, right? You're venture backed. Yeah. What was it like to be a young female member of the AAPI community to raise money? I've had a lot of folks on talking specifically about issues, especially around gender and ethnicity, how hard it is to raise money and what that process is like versus being an old white guy like me. Well, I think I come from a very high place of privilege because even though I was still a student raising... I'm not a first-time founder, and I have, you know, for investors... You have a profile. You have a profile. profile. And I think it's undeniable that I was like, it was so natural for me to create a period brand. There was nobody asking, why are you the right person? Like, this was my career for seven years. I also was a Harvard student, and my co-founder, you know, also a person of color, is a Princeton student, right? Like, we, we were coming already with titles and everything. I'll also say that, like, it was not daunting to me to raise a lot of money because I've been raising money since I was a teenager because, and this is another thing, right? Like I think a lot of people, when I announced that I was making this change, there are a lot of people on social media who are like, how could you do this? How could you leave the nonprofit world for this? Right. And for me, it was really like, I was an executive director for six years. And by the time your nonprofit is big and has programs and staff, my job as executive director, 98% of the time was fundraising from private donors, foundations, to do the actual work. And I just, the end result was that I just had no ownership. Nobody had any ownership. And for me, I actually found raising for a company that I believed in and believed in the potential so much more interesting, but also it was not daunting because in nonprofits, you're begging people to give, not invest, give you from the goodness of their hearts or often from the marketing budgets so that they get this tax deductible donation. You are begging them to give you money just like out of kindness. 
when you're a business, you say, hey, I have this brilliant idea that I believe in so much that I am giving you the opportunity, the honor <laughs> to get in. And, you know, I was we were very honest. We have some very bold ideas. I don't want you to get in the way of me posting period blood on social media. Non-negotiable that we will have strong impact programs that will be trans-inclusive. You know, I think we went into it with all, you know, when you're fundraising, you hear all this advice, be careful. They want to take too much control, They everything. We went into a hyper aware of that. We took over a year to fundraise our pre-seed round because we wanted the right investors. And I'm glad we took that time. But for me, honestly, fundraising, you know, coming from the place of privilege that I did, it was a walk in the park compared to fundraising in politics or fundraising in nonprofits. So I didn't go to business school, but I think working in nonprofits and in the policy space taught me to be a great fundraiser. And it taught me to be a killer marketer because I didn't have marketing budgets before, but I had to run global campaigns. And now I have somewhat of a marketing budget and I'm also running these campaigns, you know? So I think that for me, my learning lessons were just in the organizing space. Let's talk about marketing just for a second. I think you're a natural. And oh, by the way, the business school thing, I don't think everybody needs to go to business school to be successful. And you're, you're a great example of that among many others. How important is it to be provocative and arresting in marketing, especially when you're trying to initiate behavior change? So this is actually something we've been talking about a lot internally at August, because I think that for us, there are certain things we do that other people find provocative, but we don't think should be provocative. Seeing red liquid instead of blue dye in a period ad. Like some people think that's provocative. Those videos get taken down all the time, even if it's red paint. Like some people think that's provocative, we don't. So I think that's one side of it. Then there are things like we do provocative things, right? Like I dress up as the period fairy and walk around with my pad showing at a music festival. That I could see how people think is provocative. And then I think that there's examples where it's like we do a sexy photo shoot in lingerie with a pad out. To me, that's a very strong campaign to other people that could be like sacrilegious. You know, like I think that we are actively talking about this because we're aware that we live in an attention economy. And, you know, we are a brand on TikTok where you have three seconds before someone scrolls away, where being provocative, having that what marketers would call a hook is a very important thing and can be a game changer. At the same time, I think that one thing we talk about is how do we make sure that we're being, I don't want to say provocative, but edgy. Like, And you're also intentional, right? I mean, it's not like you're doing it to be stunty. You're doing it with a strategic intent behind it, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think that that is where that is something that we are always talking about, which is, you know, I have all these visions of campaigns all the time, right? Like I've always dreamt of this campaign where there's like a dancer dancing around in red liquid and like stomping on it and just like in your face. That is a campaign I will probably never do because I think it would be so polarizing. We wouldn't even be able to talk about the actual subject of periods, right? Like, but I also think that at the same time, like I wouldn't be able to explain the true intent behind that, that maybe a more approachable campaign could achieve. You know, I think there are examples like that where like, I think we need, like I get energy from the death threats that I get every day from posting my period content online. Because that pushback, I never have a dull day where I'm like, oh, what I'm doing is not needed, right? Like, 
the act of seeing that pushback because someone heard me say menstruator instead of women have periods just proves to me more and more how necessary we need to see our work as. So I think we do have to be provocative. I just think as you're to what you're saying, making sure it's not a stunt, making sure like without meaning, but it's really intentional. And that even if it is provocative or controversial, it is so in a way that invites people who even don't agree with us to have a conversation with us. And that's what I think is an ongoing conversation because how you define provocative is on a spectrum for different types of people. And as an influencer yourself now, congrats on 4 million followers on TikTok. That's huge. Thank you. And you, you alluded to it earlier, right? Your generation, and it's not going away. There's this tension and maybe even an abdication of responsibility by large platforms. I think TikTok's trying to work it out, but certainly when we talk about Facebook, we talk about Twitter and, and its new owner, which is a little scary. How do you feel about the tension between being an influencer, but also knowing that these platforms should and could do better when it comes to the health and safety and well-being of the folks who are on the platforms? Oof. Yeah, you know, like, I think it's hard because so much of my anxiety is because of social media. So much of my insecurities are because of the messages I received growing up on social media. Eating disorder because of social media, you know, like these are not healthy platforms. But also social media has brought me all the most empowering things in my life. It gave me community around being a survivor when I didn't have one. It was a platform that I would use as an organizer. It is our platform to connect with young people who menstruate to talk about periods. Like these are really powerful tools. And I think that what I want to see more from these platforms, and I actually think we're seeing this a bit more with TikTok, is like very fast response community management and community guidelines. You know, community guidelines, I think on TikTok are being better. TikTok, I think, especially for me as a larger creator, like I like that. And I think that the platform owes us actual people we can contact when something is going awry. These are platforms that owe us that accessibility. And I think that we need to keep seeing that. And I also think that as much as I'm all about freedom of speech, we live in a time of so much misinformation. And there are certain things that I think that we need to make sure like truth is always prioritized. And I think that that's something I feel a lot, especially around how people talk about periods and bodies and gender. And yeah, I think that, you know, it's a double-edged sword. And every day I feel, I love this platform. I hate this platform. I'm going to get off social media. Like it's a constant battle. And I think it's a beautiful thing and something I'm thankful for to have a very public platform but it means that just as everybody sees me succeeding when I mess up or as I will as a human, it's also very public. And I think that that is a risk that I fully signed up for. Yeah. And it, well, it's, it's interesting too, because when it comes to human beings and content moderation, the very people who have to go through that themselves are dealing with mental health issues, right? They're seeing a lot and they're dealing with a lot online as well. And we need them. And we need them to do what they do. At the same time, I feel like they're sacrificing themselves. Like, and, and the robot is not the answer either. So I, I don't know if there's an answer, but I don't know if you're familiar with Chloe Freeman, but I had them on not long ago. And you know, we're talking about you know, the trans community. And, and I don't have an answer for this because only time will tell. But I wonder, you know, so Elon Musk now owns Twitter at the time of this recording. 
he already posted a conspiracy theory that was patently false. I'm not even going to mention it because I would just be, you know, promoting it. And he says he's all for free speech, but I wonder if he's also going to be free speech for things like period products and misperceptions about menstruation and the trans community. I just, time will tell, right? But it's a double-edged sword and that's what we're dealing with the social media. It's a double-edged sword. Yeah, I think it's very scary. And I think that the burden on mental health has already been proven that there needs to be some more checks and balances here. But I think how I think of it with August a lot too, right? Is like, sometimes I think, are we adding to the noise of what's on social media? Like, what is the responsibility that we have to keep it a positive, non-judgmental space? I'm very careful about like which even haters I respond to, which rumors I will even give the light of day. Like even last night, I had a panic attack and made a video because some troll account faked messages of me grooming them, like asking for nudes and said, I'm a minor, Nadia. And like these messages are the most explicit, very fake. And I was groomed. I did. I grew up with grooming. I had teachers who were fired for grooming me that we had to prove like I, that is a part of my own trauma. And I was really triggered by it. And I was like, I hate social media. This is the worst thing ever. Like, why would anybody do this? And because of being an influencer and knowing that this is a part of my reputation and well-being, and this is something that even other audience members take very seriously, at 11.30 p.m., I had to get on my phone and make a statement and say, this is not true. And you need to recognize that. And I will not let this continue on. This is not true. And people were like, thank you for addressing it. But also there are people who are like, oh, I thought it might be true. Like, these are platforms where anybody can say anything. And... Again, I experience things like that and I'm like, well, should I just get off social media? But I also recognize that social media is like how I've connected to other people who experienced hard things. And I think it's it's a, also an incredible opportunity. And I think that for me, I just want to add more positive light to this and just make it a space that where I can speak my truth in a way that is positive and has a purpose and, you know, isn't stunty, but has that intention. And I think the best thing that we can do as influencers is to keep pointing out that these platforms are really problematic. Yeah. And I don't think you can let people get away with that type of hate or misinformation. And I get it because look, my background's in crisis management and, you know, you don't want to legitimize the counterparty at the same time though, sometimes you need to put a fucking pin in it and that's what you did. And that's what you did. And even if it doesn't totally stop it, it does give you a little bit more peace of mind that you tried because a no comment by you is a comment for someone else. I always say that. And it's so true. My last question, and this is on behalf of all of my listeners, I think this is important. What do you do to practice self-care when you're having moments of doubt or panic or concern? What have you learned about yourself and ways in which you know there's coping self-care mechanisms that you put into place? Sleep is a really big part. That's very new for me. I went years only sleeping two, two to three hours a night. So I think I'm still, still catching up on that. So sleep is really big for me. Also yoga, like I do like hot yoga every single day or some sort of workout. And for all my PTSD girlies out there, I'd also say like the book, The Body Keeps the Score was like a really, really life-changing one for me because I think it really helped me contextualize why movement has always really been a part of my coping so I would say yoga, like dance movement is really important. You know, I don't have many, like for me, self-care isn't like, oh, I, like I work until midnight and then I go to sleep for, you know, <laughs> hopefully 10 hours. Like I work a lot, but for me, like 
sleep and yoga are huge. And then of course, like therapy, I'm going to therapy today. I like made an emergency appointment because of all this fucking trolls I'm grooming that I did find really triggering. And I think being really unapologetic about being in therapy, I talk a lot about it on my podcast. And then also I think just being open to trying new things. Like I'm two years onto antidepressants. It's something that I talk about a lot because I have gotten like, I don't know, like even from potential investors, like question marks on if I'm stable enough to run a company because I'm on antidepressants. <laughs> but most of the founders I know are all on a lot of antidepressants. <laughs> so yeah, for me, routine is huge. And then I think part of it too is company culture. Like I know that as CEO, I'm supposed to embody a lot of the culture that we're trying to create. And I think that I want this to be an open space where people can be vulnerable about their limitations and take breaks when they need to. And that's something that I always want to push myself to be better at too. But it also is a very intentional part of our, the conversations we have at work, right? Like I love our office. I'm in our office right now. I want this to feel like a safe and happy place so that it's not a draining place to be. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting when you talk about meds and antidepressants and yeah, so those very investors and others, they're taking like, you know, statins and things for their heart and cholesterol, right? They could drop dead any second because they don't have good heart health. How is that any different than taking care of your mental health, which could also be deadly and fatal if you don't take care of yourself? I just, there's still a stigma there. And maybe that should be your next startup, which is to battle the stigma against mental health. Because like for me, mobility and movement, like I pretty much work out every day. I do something, something. And I know I need that as a regulator. And if I don't have that, I'm off. And you don't want, no one wants to be around me, including me, you know? Listen, Nadia, you are a force. You are an incredible human being. I wish there were more Nadias in the world, honestly. And hopefully we'll find more. I don't think we can, because you're one of a kind. And I appreciate your vulnerability. I appreciate your vision your passion and just your, your, your humanity. And I do believe that you are leading a generation that will, it's gonna take some time, but, and it's not to add more pressure, but you guys are changing the world for the better. It's just gonna take some time. I believe in this generation, I believe in you. So thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Best of luck with everything. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and hosts by emailing BOP at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast.